You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. They were three cops who had nothing in common. Freeze. Big V, what are you doing here? Hey, you know, man, keeping the streets safe, boys. One would do anything to get ahead. You truly prepared to be despised within the department? Yes, sir, I am. One had his own brand of justice. How's it going to look in your report? It'll look like justice. That's what the man got. And one loved the spotlight. What exactly do you do on the show, Jack? I teach Brett Chase how to walk and talk like a cop. The Night Owl Massacre. This is a heinous crime that requires swift resolution. Six victims. One of them, one of our own. Interrogations will be led by Lieutenant Edmund Exley. I need some backup. Come on. All right, Collins boy, I'll help. Now, all of them are faced with solving one case. Don't move! I want confessions, Edmund. Oh, I'll break them, sir. These people are all in the morgue. And someone has to pay for it. There's something wrong with the night owl. I just can't prove it. They thought they had it all figured out. Anything bothering you about the night owl case? The fact that you guys won't let it get filed away. I didn't kill nobody! But what started as a murder... You talk only to me on this one. ...became a mystery that could cost them everything. And why was Susan Leffert at the Night Owl? I don't know. I never heard of the Night Owl till today. How about some payback, big time? We need evidence. I'll get the evidence. It was an information exchange. Do you have any proof? The proof had his throat slit. What do you want, actually? I just want to solve this thing. Even if it means paying the consequences? Russell Crowe, Guy Pearce, James Cromwell, Kim Basinger, Danny DeVito. L.A. Confidential. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me this week is Mr. Eric Cohen. Hello. Glad to be here. Also this week is Professor Rich Edwards. This entire podcast today is going to be off the record, on the QT, and very hush-hush. This week we're taking a ride in a convertible time machine and bebobbing back to the year 1997 to look at Curtis Hansen's L.A. Confidential. Starring more folks from down under than you can shake a boomerang at, this jazzy flick plays with many classic noir tropes while playing fast and loose with the third book of James Elroy's L.A. Quartet. We're going to be getting into a lot of spoilers on this episode, Daddy-O, for both the book and the movie, so if you haven't seen Confidential or read the book, turn that radio dial off and check us out when you have. We will still be here waiting for you. Now, Rich, when was the first time you saw L.A. Confidential, and what did you think? Well, I saw it when it came out, and I saw it in the movie theaters, and I loved it from the get-go. This film has always been one of my absolutely favorite neo-noir films. I think it is one of the best uh, modern throwback films. It's a film that I can confidently discuss, I think, along the lines of a, a film that's probably a slightly better film like Chinatown, but LA Confidential is not far behind that gold standard. And what really impressed me the first time, which is just lost now, almost uh, 21 years later, is I didn't really know the cast 
the first time around. So Guy Pierce was fairly new to me. Russell Crowe uh, was part of a new revelation. I was somewhat familiar with Kevin Spacey and definitely knew about Kim Bassinger and Danny DeVito. But I really think especially all those Aussies in the cast, especially Pierce and Crowe, really made a powerful impression on me. And I'm very grateful that both of them ended up having other great roles, especially Pearson, another neo-noir that I love, Memento, and then Crow, uh, with his very impressive career. So I think it's a great film on a lot of levels, and I really can't wait to talk about it with you two. I, too, saw it when it first came out in the movie theaters. Uh, kind of a funny story. I was halfway through the novel before I saw the movie. And I kept telling myself, do I finish a novel before I see the movie? It's like, nah, I'm just going to see the movie. And uh, yeah, I remember really, really liking it the first time I've seen it. My, my opinions changed slightly since repeated viewings, which we'll probably get into later. But of that particular year, which was, was it 97? It, that, I thought that was one of the best movies to come out that year, hands down. As time has gone on, I've kind of grown a little cool to it. But it's still, I feel it's a textbook example of how to adapt something for the screen. Um, I give it a lot of props for taking an epic tome and perfectly uh, streamlining it to a, a two-hour film. Yeah, I'm very curious to get those thoughts of as you're sitting there watching it and having gone halfway through the book what your impressions were. We'll definitely talk about that as we go along. I also saw this at the theater. Now, you said this might have been one of the best movies of 1997. I can't believe you're not a Titanic head, man. Come on. <laughs> I was never a Titanic head. <laughs> um, although I have to say the whole, you know, everything that begins the sinking of the ship is spectacular cinema. It really is. But everything else around it, I was, you know, the romance plot, all that stuff. I, I was never into Titanic. Yeah, I saw this at the theater, and I, I know I saw it actually a few times at the theater because I was going around and around with my wife about this because this was one of the first movies that we saw together, and we didn't get together until 98. So I think I saw it kind of on that Oscars bounce once it got nominated for a bunch of Oscars. It kind of came back out to the theaters because it came out. September of 97, probably played strong to about Christmas, died down a little bit, and then I'm sure it came back. At that point, I think the Oscars usually played in April rather than March or in February, so I think it kind of had that dead cap bounce with the Oscars. No, and it definitely did, and that's a good point, Mike, that I don't think a lot of people remember nowadays, but this was a film that had legs. It did a really good business. It did about $125 million in initial box office on a production budget of $35 million. And I think part of how it made that money, especially in the 97 timeframe, is it was still showing theatrically from September to about February. So, I mean, that that's a long run for any film. And this this film just kept kind of overachieving expectations and finding a larger and larger audience. And I think the Oscars brought in a more general audience and not just like the film noir diehards and the L James Elroy fans that I think were in the first wave. Also, I'm sure what helped save money was that cast because you didn't have big names in this. It's amazing to look at the posters and see Kim Basinger just huge in this. Like, she's bigger on this poster than she is in The Marrying Man. You know, it's just like, here she is. Here's Kim Basinger. And then here's Kevin Spacey. And 
kind of in the mid-ground, and then they're way back. If you look closely enough, you maybe can see Guy Pearce and Russell Crowe in these posters, but it is really living on the... I mean, Danny DeVito gets more notice than those guys do, and I was very fortunate. I kind of knew who those guys were going in. I, I'd seen Proof. Proof is an amazing film. I'd seen Romper Stomper. I'd seen uh, Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. That was one of these movies, which still today... I can watch that movie, turn off the VCR, or hit rewind, rewind it, and then watch it again. Um, but now I just, with the press of one button, it just plays one more time. It's amazing, modern technology. Um, but yeah, love those films. And so I was really excited to see these guys in this movie and to see those two guys together, to see Pierce and Crow together. I fell in love with those characters and just, you know, it's like... Some people love the nice guys, but it's like, okay, I'd rather just see him as Bud White and, and Guy Pierce as uh, Ed Exley again and have those two guys together. I'm, uh, I don't know. I, I'm, I would like to see those guys as time travelers going throughout the entire known world and fighting crime together as Ed Exley and Bud White. But that's just me. I mean, that that's my pilot pitch right now, if anybody wants to take that show. L.A. Confidential Through the Ages. Wow, the Exley Files. I'm all over it. We're going to do this. The Exley File. I was going to say that I, I think I read somewhere, some interview with Curtis Hansen, that, that he, he said that the reason why he cast Crow and uh, Pierce was because he wanted unknowns to play those parts so that the audience would have no expectations as to where they, their, those characters will go in the film. Usually you have like some sort of baggage with like a star playing a certain role, yeah. right? And he did a similar thing by casting Kevin Spacey, sort of the Janet Lee of uh, L.A. Confidential, right? Where he was sort of like pitched as the, the lead, you know, in all the posters and all that stuff. And we know what happens to him. Right. But yeah, I too was familiar with both Crow and Pierce's work. Uh, same reasons as Mike. Need, need we not forget uh, Quick and the Dead? Oh, fuck yes. Which also had Russell Crowe in it. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting that that of all the unknown or up-and-coming actors that Hanson chose for those parts. He chose two guys. I guess technically Crow is New Zealand, right? Crow's New Zealand, and technically um, Guy Pierce was born in England, but yeah, for all intents and purposes, they're Australians. The, the Crow thing, I was a big fan of Romper Stomper, and I was like really psyched that he was cast in this. But Pierce, I was really, really curious to see how transformative he was after seeing him in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, right? Um, and after seeing him in this, I remember thinking, God, this guy's a really good actor, really interesting actor. I love that the take you have on it, because I think retroactively, if you watch this with uh, fresh eyes, it's so true that, um, you know, with the characters of Bud White and Ed Exley, you really have characters going on unconventional narrative arcs. And the less you know about a built-in acting persona and letting the Hegel and Hansen script work its magic on the uh, underbelly of the Elroy uh, mechanics that are coming from the novel, I think uh, Pierce is a revelation for how his character has to get dirtier and crow is a revelation for how his character has to get cleaner and it's a fascinating side by side and that was something in re-watching it for the projection booth for this episode i really paid attention to how elegantly those two arcs brush up against each other without invalidating either arc of the characters 
that is an example of what I was talking about, about the amazing way Hegelin managed to take this like incredibly dense, I think it spans almost a decade. Mm-hmm. It's like eight years or something like that. And you had all these like threads, like these like plot threads going on. You, you, you're like going to ask me about my, my opinion of like being halfway through the novel than seeing the movie, right? And then finishing a novel afterwards. I was at, from a person who was like really liking the novel and like looking forward to what I was seeing and, and trying to like make connect the dots between what I was seeing being adapted and what wasn't. I was I was like kind of like thinking, ah, so I guess, you know, uh, this version of Bud White isn't going to be investigating any serial killings, right? I guess that's not going to happen. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. And you know what? It was smart to just let, the, you know, let that go. I start to think, and this is going to be a weird analogy, but I think about a film like The Shape of Water and a film like L.A. Confidential, because when I was reading reviews of The Shape of Water, they talked about how many different genres Del Toro was touching on in making his 1960s hybrid film that touches on so many different genres. And when I think about L.A. Confidential, the novel versus the film, the film still has all of moments that would in any other film be the plot mechanic. So it really is a political corruption, sex, drugs, racism, pornography, Hollywood Babylon, blackmail, police corruption, gangster, domestic abuse film. But it touches on each of those things quickly without ever bogging down because the actual tentpole is the relationship between the primary trio of Jack Vincennes and Ed Exley and Bud White. And if I really start to think about what, why this film is coherent, the genius of the screenplay is the novel gets boiled down to three characters that reveal the three legs of the stool that have to hold up the entire weight of all of these secondary tertiary themes and the way that i was thinking about it for this podcast was it really got boiled down to the moralistic cop the opportunistic cop and the pugilistic cop and then around those solid stool legs then you can kind of just play with genre hybridity without ever losing the focus so that when it goes into all of these other noir crime elements that would actually be the full plot of another film that that essential trio of three men who have three very different approaches to being a police officer is what i think this movie ends up being about in the hands of a lesser filmmaker you're going to lose a lot of stuff that's in this movie you're going to lose the entire probably first 20 minutes of this film where we get this beautiful and I, I use that term very sincerely, even though it's Danny DeVito's kind of gra- you know, raspy voice, this beautiful voiceover of him as Sid Hutchins doing this kind of Hepcat dialogue as he's writing the story in the pages of Hush Hush magazine and giving you the landscape of L.A. and telling us about this power vacuum that has happened because Mickey Cohen has been carted off to jail. He's giving you this whole scenario, laying it out. And then introducing us, not him introducing us, but then we are introduced to Ed Exley, to Bud White, to Jack Vincennes, and get to see these guys kind of operating, and we get the bloody Christmas incident that was based on a real-life incident. And then the fallout from that, and the way that Exley, kind of speaking to that power vacuum, is now he's trying to kind of work his way into there, 
raise in the ranks, uh, like you said, the very opportunistic cop. And then, you know, it's just we're introduced to all of these things going out before we ever get to what really becomes the central thrust of the book and of the movie, which is the Night Owl killings. I think any other filmmaker or most other filmmakers would probably start at the Night Owl and then kind of retroactively introduce us to these characters. But to have that that structure up front to show us how these guys operate, I think is really super smart. And it's such a wonderful introduction to these guys. I completely agree. Um, I want to make a little like fashion note because I have a bit of a hat fetish. And this was like uh, one of the other things that for some reason uh, made an impression on me. The person I saw this was like, wow, this is like a period film doing the noir thing, but hardly anybody wears hats. I thought that was a really interesting choice. You are correct that it's set in the early 50s. All the men really should have been wearing hats in almost every single scene because hats don't go out of fashion until the early 60s. But I do think outside of the continuity errors associated with haberdashery, the film does do a great job with its period, playing with period, and using very subtle drop-ins, such as using Ouija-style photographs to do one crime scene, but never returning to that aesthetic, or showing uh, a moment of the Badge of Honor TV show to bring in an early police procedural and the idea of Dragnet without, again, overdoing it, or doing the kind of real casual drop-ins as in the wonderful, really, truly hilarious scene uh, when Johnny Stompanato is out with the real Lana Turner that kind of establishes the period. It is shot in a lot of the uh, current LA places that were still around in that era, like the Formosa or like the Frolic Room. And I, I just like it in the way that I like Chinatown in that this is a film that could only take place in LA and like the great Robert Town screenplay for Chinatown, Hegeland and Hansen understood that when you're telling these crime stories about L.A., you're almost always in crime fiction, also telling the history of Los Angeles itself. And so that opening with Danny DeVito and that opening montage that actually uses very um, traditional industrial films, so you get all of the kind of industrial films about the forming of mid-century LA and the fantasy of what LA was supposed to be, that then all of this corruption, all of this uh, dark underbelly of LA plays against. And I think it's a very effective way that the film opens and it wouldn't necessarily be the choice of a lot of other filmmakers, but I love that choice because it grounds the importance of both place and time period, because that's the canvas that this story needs in order to fully breathe on screen. One of the most interesting things about this movie is that we don't have a real antagonist through so much of this film, though we do. This is one of those movies that has a secret antagonist. And I love that, that we are introduced to Dudley Smith, who we don't necessarily know what is driving him though the first time that you watch this you probably think that he's a very good guy or is as good as a cop in la can be 
And James Cromwell at this point, yes, he had been in a ton of things, but he was one of these guys where he could play a hero as well as a villain. He could play a, a wonderful, uh, you know, friendly farmer with a magical pig, these kind of things, and then turn around and play Dudley Smith just as easily. And he is wonderful. And the thing that I love about his character is that one of the first times we see him, he asks Ed Exley, played by Guy Pierce, a series of questions about all of these things that he might have to do in the line of duty as a police officer. Would you be willing to plant corroborative evidence on a suspect you knew to be guilty in order to ensure an indictment? Dudley, we've been over this. Yes or no, Edmund? No. Would you be willing to beat a confession out of a suspect you knew to be guilty? No. Would you be willing to shoot a hardened criminal in the back in order to offset the chance that some lawyer... No. They are all those things that we just talked about as far as they're the things that Bud White can do. They're the things that Exley can't do. And by the end of the film, I think they are the things that Exley has the potential, if not actually does, throughout the movie. Really, Dudley Smith is uh, undone by underestimating the men around him. He's, he thinks that Exley is in this pigeonhole. He thinks that Bud White has his thing and he will never get any smarter than he currently is. He thinks that Jack Vincennes is just a one-note kind of Johnny. And by underestimating these three guys, that's ultimately going to be the thing that topples him. When I, I, I watched the movie, when I was only halfway through the novel, where I started to get confused, a lot. First of all, you know, I was like shocked and surprised, you know, when what happens to Kevin Spacey, right? I didn't get to that part in the novel yet. And I was like, ah, oh, it spoiled it for me for the novel and all that stuff. And, you know, then, you know, what happens to Dudley Smith at the very end? I was particularly confused with how they handled the Buzz Meeks character, you know, watching the film. Because, like, wait a minute, I just read the novel and all this stuff happens in the first chapter. And I was aware, I haven't read The Big Nowhere, but I was aware he was like a major character in, in Big Nowhere. I was like, okay, I, are they going to do any references to that? I guess sort of, not really. And then I went back and read the rest of the novel. I was even more confused <laughs> because Dudley doesn't die in a novel. And uh, although, uh, gosh, uh, Vincent's almost forgot his name. Vincent's character does die in a novel. He doesn't die in the same way he does in the movie. And the, the big climax to the movie is actually the opening of the novel, but it happens to Buzz Meeks where they're all right. So I, I was like, whoa. So I was like trying to like separate, okay, what I see the movie versus what I'm reading the book, you know, and sometimes when I would like later on talk about the movie with friends, I would get like certain thing fragments from the novel, like kind of like entering into my mind. It's like, no, wait, that happened in the novel. That didn't happen in the movie. Returning to the novel after seeing the movie was like making all these comparisons in my head to how they decided to change things and, and how it, it worked for the movie. But in some ways, like the literary, uh, you know, sometimes I, I, I do pine for some literary faithfulness in my adaptations. I was kind of disappointed that certain things didn't pan out the way it did in the novel. Lunsford is in the novel, and he's not even in the movie, though Mrs. Lefferts at one point says his name was Munz or Lunz or Lutz or something like that. So it's like she's kind of mixing up the characters themselves. Buzz Meeks is just like there for a second at the beginning and then there for a flashback at one point. And God, the guy that plays Buzz Meeks, he has an incredible face. I just think that he looks wonderful. He kind of reminds me of one of the 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 uh, characters from uh, Dick Tracy, you know, but yeah, he's got an amazing 
jaw that looks like it was hewn out of clay. Also, Exley's father is still alive, and it's his brother that was killed by the purse snatcher. Actually, those questions that I was just talking about come from Exley's father in the book, as opposed to coming from Dudley Smith in the movie, which kind of puts Smith into this role as far as being this father figure to Exley. And if I'm not mistaken, they promoted Dudley Smith for the movie. Like in the novel, he wasn't the captain, was he? No, he he was uh, he ends up as the captain, and then Exley ends up as the chief of detectives. But you get to see that wonderful maneuvering that Exley does, and I love that there's the opening, uh, the the fallout from Bloody Christmas, where you get Exley talking to Chief Parker, Alice Lowe, the district attorney, and Dudley Smith, the captain at that point, and laying out everything and basically telling them how this thing should run and then moving into behind the uh the one-way glass uh, the the one-way mirror and then watching it all play out and he's already handed them all the things that they need to do and we get that same thing repeating at the very end and we kind of get that in the middle in an interrogation scene that we'll definitely talk about here we have all of these great introductions to all of these characters, and then about 24 minutes into the film, this movie runs a little bit longer than two hours, about 24 minutes into the film, we get another Sid Hutchins voiceover, and he's talking about these two men tr- trigger teams who are punching the cards of all these Mickey Cohen associates and kind of cleaning up crime around L.A., and who's behind all this? Is it this guy? Nope. Is it this guy? Nope. And then we kind of move from that into the night aisle. And like I said, that's kind of where I think other filmmakers would start. It's just like, here's this mystery, because the night owl becomes the prevailing mystery. Because there are mystery elements that have been introduced, like having Jack Vincennes find the Fleur de Lis card, and having you know different things kind of being set up here and there. Uh, having Bud White see Lynn Bracken and see Susan Lefferts with the nose that's taped up and these kind of like little hints, but we don't get a proper mystery, quote unquote, until 20, 25 minutes into the film with the Night Owl massacre. And that's normally where we would start our police procedural is, you know, the call comes in and we go from there it's it's almost like the beginning of the laughing policeman or something with the massacre on the bus and then the rest of it is investigating the crime so it's really nice that we kind of have already had to start setting up those dominoes before we even get to that moment maybe i just spent too much time last year watching alfred hitchcock films but i really think part of what LA Confidential does very well as a trick that Hitchcock learned, which is so much of this movie strikes me as having a lot of MacGuffins. I think the fleur de lis and the way that some of these mysteries, the fleur de lis is about as meaningful in this film as like the wine bottle and Notorious, because it does drive a certain amount of the narrative action, and we kind of want to get to the bottom of some of these cases. But ultimately, the solving of any of these things is absolutely, utterly irrelevant to the much more important task that the filmmakers took upon themselves, especially the screenwriter and the director, which is really this film is about telling a very L.A. story through the trio of the three police protagonists. And we keep getting trios over and over and over again, because even when it comes to the Night Owl, it's a trio of Negroes who allegedly were the ones that committed this massacre. 
in the book, it's a trio of triggermen. They take it down to two in this one for whatever reason. But we get trios constantly coming through. And even you can look at like three people here, three people there. You know, you can group Racken and Patchett and Hutchins as being one group. You can uh, group uh, Dick Stenslin. And, you know, so there are these trios that go throughout this whole thing. And that's a nice little nod that they're doing in this. But yeah, you, you kind of, we've touched on this, but we haven't said it outright, is that this screenplay, this film, to Eric's point from earlier, it is markedly different from the book. Reading the book, you can just say like, wow, how did they get from that to the movie or from the movie, you know, looking back at the book, how did how did this kind of come about? And it's one of the least faithful adaptations in staying to everything that's in the story, but it's one of the most faithful adaptations to me in so far as sticking with the tone of it and sticking with that, that main meat of the story. And there's a, there's a phrase that I've heard many times before that good books make bad movies and bad books make good movies. And this is one of those rare instances where you have the book and the movie kind of standing on their own and you can never read the, the book and be happy with the movie. You can never see the movie and be happy with the book, or you can actually enjoy both of them, which is really remarkable that one doesn't necessarily, at least to me, and it might be different for you, Eric, having kind of had this midway uh, experience. But for me, I can enjoy both of them and not necessarily think one is true when one is false or one is better than the other. I can enjoy both things and not have to kind of get bent out of shape about it as opposed to other things where you just go, oh my God, the book was so terrible and the movie was so good or vice versa. I, I completely agree with you, Mike. In fact, I would even go further and say that a good adaptation is not necessarily synonymous with being a faithful adaptation. There are very few films that I consider to be faithful adaptations that are good adaptations. Big off the top of my head, we, we discussed Maltese Falcon. That's about as faithful as you can get. That's a good movie. And it's a good novel. Silence of the Lambs is a faithful adaptation. To Kill a Mockingbird is a faithful adaptation, and it's a good movie. But that really works. I can also think of some great adaptations that are nothing like the novels. Uh, the Shining comes to mind. The Thing. You know, you have a lot of people, I mean, especially in today's fanboy atmosphere, you know, you're going to adapt Superman. You know, he's got to look exactly like this. And the cape has to be red. You know, otherwise I'm not going to see it. This is going to be called Batman versus Superman. You better have Batman versus Superman. You know, that kind of thing. And it's like, what about, what is it that you're trying to achieve with making this film? As long as you're true to the intent and you do it with conviction, that's all that matters. And in the case of something like L.A. Confidential, it's, it's, it's definitely faithful in spirit. And it, and it, and it gets the uh, the themes and the central message that Elroy was trying to get across in his novel. No, do things happen exactly the same way they do a novel? Absolutely not. Is the time frame compressed? Absolutely. Are characters eliminated and streamlined? Positively. But it's a good film, you know, and it's a good adaptation, but it's not necessarily a faithful adaptation. One of the things I love about LA Confidential is I don't, really end up in my own head because I've read the LA Quartet and I really like what Elroy was doing. And this is the rare case where I both love the film and love the movie for very different reasons. If the movie, if the movie was longer and tried to get into some of the 
other areas Elroy went into, I don't think it would be as effective. And I think if the novel was shorter and more streamlined, like a police procedural, it wouldn't work either. And so I think both sets of artists, the novelist and then the film crew, did what they did with a story. And you can see how the story, when you're not worrying about page count, can go one direction. And the film, when you actually are worrying about cost and how you have to cast it, went in a different direction. So it's one of those rare cases for me where I love both objects and I'm not I don't feel one's better than the other. There, the, this is not the case of something like The Black Dahlia, which I think is a good book, but the film's a terrible movie. It's really fun in this case that I can like both objects and have a deeper admiration for both. These three black guys, three African-American gentlemen, are fingered for this because there were allegedly three black guys who were shooting off shotguns in Griffith Park. There were allegedly three trigger men in this uh, night owl robbery, and people put two and two together, and they go after these guys. And I love that moment when it's Exley and Vincennes are paired up at this point, both men kind of not necessarily liked by their superiors or almost anybody else on the force at this point. They end up figuring out who drives that color car, who had the shotguns, those kind of things. They go to check out this lead. They get there. There's the car. There's the shotguns. And there's two other cops there. And that moment when they break into this apartment and actually sees the one cop go to shoot one of the suspects who hasn't done anything. And the way that actually takes the shotgun and points it up and, and prevents these uh, one of the guys from getting killed and ends up arresting these guys. I, I mean, this is 1997. We're just a few years north of the OJ trial. This is, I can't remember how far we were from Rodney King, but we know about these abuses inside of the L.A. police force. If you haven't read the L.A. Quartet at this point, you know, it is, it's just like any, any you know, 20-year-old or 25-year-old, I can't remember how, I was, how old I was at the time, but I knew that the, the L.A. police was a really corrupt uh, police force. And to see these guys come in here and I pretty much figure out at this moment that they're just going to kill these guys. Uh, and if it wasn't for Exley they would all be dead and it's actually it would have been better and it would have been the plan to murder these guys and just pin this crime on these guys and sew it all up and what happens is that exley manages to uncover another crime that happened and probably to me my favorite scene of this film which is this interrogation scene of these three black guys and the way that exley plays one against the other by use of this interrogation, it is so amazing. When he comes in and sees the one guy who's got the the he's got a black eye, and he says, you know, did the did the cops do this to you? And just that little look from him, just like, come on, let's be serious. Of course, the cops did this to me. I am particularly like having rewatched it over the weekend to prepare for this. I was really impressed with with what Dante Spinotti, the cinematographer. Uh, how he shot that scene where it's, it's almost a cliche, you know, the, the interrogation rooms have the two way mirrors, right. And all that kind of stuff, but how he would, you could see through the the window through the two way mirror. You could see the interrogation process process, but you could still see the reflection of all the police guys on the other side of it. It almost works like a split screen where you're seeing two events happening at the same time, but it's all happening in the same space. 
that was the thing that really struck me having seen it recently. I was like, wow, this, this sequence right here is, is just masterful. Part of what I think you see throughout the entire film is Ed Exley is constantly um, being shot against these two-way mirrors because it really starts in the earlier scene after the fallout of Bloody Christmas. And it, of course, comes back in later scenes when he's actually on the other side of the two-way glass, um, actually um, in the fallout of the murder of Dudley Smith. I like how the glass works as a kind of membrane and it absolutely shows you, it finds a visual analog for the working of Exley's brain because it's really hard on screen to show ratiocination, um, to actually show how someone thinks. In a novel, you can actually get into his head so you can anticipate how an interrogation is going. But on film, especially when there needs to be massive amounts of interiority, you have to find a visual analog for it. And I think um, Hansen and Spinati do use two-way mirrors as effectively as I've ever seen it in the genre. There are a lot of scenes with Exley's character and two-way mirrors, You know, not just like when he's in the interrogation room. But also when he's being filmed by uh, Sid Hutchins as he's having, you know, sex with Lynn, you know, he seems to find himself trapped behind two-way mirrors all the time. The delivery of some of these lines, the delivery of... Said they called you sugar because you gave it out. So sweet. That is just amazing to me. And then the physical performance and God, let's not forget the amazing score for this film. But when we have Russell Crowe outside hearing all of these, not necessarily confessions, but hearing the way that the story is building up and learning that there was a woman at the center of of what these three black guys had done, him grasping that chair and when he breaks off the back of the chair and storms into the room takes out the bullets from his gun and just does that one in six and puts the gun in the guy's mouth. That's one of the most intense things I've ever seen on film. You wanted Lewis to lose his cherry, but that wasn't enough. So things got out of hand and you made her bleed. She bled on your clothes, so you burned the clothes. Told you that! Now listen to me. If that girl is still alive, she's the only chance you've got. I think she's alive! You think? Then where is she now? Did you leave her someplace? Did you sell her out? Where she is. Move. Yeah. White. Where's the girl? White, I have this under control. Put the weapon Where down. Is the girl? What? Sylvester Fitch. 109 Avalon. Brown Corner House. Upstairs. And it just shows so much about White and his character and what he's all about. And, you know, we've heard before and we've seen even in the first time that we're introduced to Bud White that he has this real soft spot for women. And that, you know, it's like as soon as there's a woman brought into this case, he's going to be this avenging angel. And it's great because we have the way that Exley has been kind of schmoozing these guys and doing this whole give me one for the DA, like those kind of little things. And the way that he's using the microphones under the table to play one against another, to play quotes from these interviews from one guy to the other guy's holding area. And he's doing it all through words. 
and Bud White is just doing it all through violence. And it's great because, like you guys are saying, by the end of this, they'll kind of be able to cross. Because really, once we get out of this area, even before this, I think, we get to see Bud White starting to do some police work and finding out when he sees Sue Leffert's body and he knows that she was associated with Lynn Bracken, then finding out Bracken's information, finding out Pierce Patchett's information, going to interview Patchett the first time that we see David Strathern on film and Strathern in the Pierce Patchett role. I mean, this is again, going to how brilliant the screenplay is. We think for sure that Patchett is going to be the man of the hour when it comes to who's the bad guy, because he seems like he's the guy who's pulling all the strings and has his fingers in all of these different pies. So it's really great that they kind of are just handing us this red herring and saying, yeah, here's probably the guy that you're going to want to bet on because he's involved in all this kind of shady dealing. We get Patchett's name and Patchett coming into the story in other ways. We barely see David Strait there, but his figure kind of looms large over the rest of the film, especially when we have Jack Vincennes questioning Sid Hutchins. And, you know, he questions him repeatedly about uh, the Pierce Patchett character. And at first, Hutchins blows him off. Patchett is what I call Twilight. He ain't queer and he ain't red. He cannot help me in my quest for prime sinuendo. He doesn't do anything for me. And then we get a little bit later on of, of some other stuff. And it's like, you know, once we find out that Hudgens knows Patchett, it's like, oh, yeah, for sure. He's the guy you put the big red circle around his picture on your on your conspiracy wall. But it's brilliant that he ends up being a red herring. Yeah. And, and uh, although he's not in it that much, David Strathairn is very charming. And I, I like just the still stoic nature of his performance. He doesn't he's he's not playing it slimy which is what I like about it. Uh, he's likable, which I think is interesting about the character and how he decides uh, to uh, approach that character. And I know David Strathairn could play it slime if he wanted to, but he's such a a likable actor when you see him on screen. I mean, I've, I kind of fell in love with him all the way back to The Firm, and ever since then it's just like, oh, give me more of this guy. And whenever he would show up, it'd be like, okay, great, he's on screen. And it was almost like, you know, your friend showing up. So when he shows up as, as Pierce Morehouse Patchett, it's just like, okay, yeah, I guess, I, all right. You know, I, I'd like to hang out with this guy, have a drink with him. But he seems a little upscale. He'd probably want to play tennis or something. I'm not really into that. So, you know, may, maybe next time. Maybe next time, Pierce. You know, call me again next week. They're completely antithetical to the uh, Eric Roberts interpretation in the pilot. Which seems like it's cut right from the same character that he played in Batman Begins. Yeah, or almost anything he's been in, really. Yeah, post-Star 80. <laughs> almost as soon as the three black guys are introduced to the story, they are taken out of the story. And that's when we have the mystery basically being solved. And we have Exley coming in, and he kind of prevented that shotgun from going off earlier and now he's the one with the shotgun and i do love that moment where he shotguns this guy in an elevator and he he has just stuck a shotgun inside of this closing elevator pulls the trigger and then the elevator door opens and we get that long i just forgot how long it is that shot of his face and we don't know what his reaction is. Did he just do something horrible or something 
good or what? You know, was that an innocent bystander in the in the elevator or what has happened? And then we get that next moment where it's just like, hey, shotgun Eddie, and everybody's congratulating him. And it's like, oh, I mean, it's such a nice little moment of suspense, but it really works. Um, what I really liked about that moment was they could have gone for the cliche, you know, this guy is green. He sees what he sees and he throws up or something like that. And he doesn't. You get a hint that maybe he's bothered by what he sees. But at the same time, I like that you're given an option to sort of realize this guy's not as green as we've been led to believe kind of vibe I'm getting from it. He's tougher. You know, he see, he claims that he's a straight arrow, which I just put out there that he's a straight arrow. He's going to play the politics to get to wherever he wants to go. But, but that's the hint that we, that's the first hint we see that he has it in him to do those things. Dudley fears he's not capable of doing. And also that he has taken off his glasses at that point. One of the first criticisms he gets from Dudley is lose the glasses. And then we see him throughout the rest of the film with glasses, without glasses. And we can tell that he can't necessarily see that well. At one point, he's across the station house from uh, a clock on the wall. And he goes up and he has to put his glasses on to see clearly what he's looking at. And when the night owl case breaks he's there with dudley and a photographer comes up and ed makes sure to take his glasses off before the photo is taken and he gives this great still pose at that moment and so i'm thinking oh my god he didn't have his glasses on at this moment and he killed someone by mistake but then i noticed that as the movie goes on he puts the glasses back on and i guess we could kind of get into hitchcock territory and say like you know is he investigating too much is he you know like there's always the the no women in Hitchcock films that have glasses or thicker glasses, especially, you know, Patricia Hitchcock and Strangers on a Train, right? And it's just like, yeah, those those women generally need to be punished and they need to to be murdered by the end of the film. And with Exley, it's like, you know, he he is investigating too much. And I think Dudley wants him to take those glasses off so that he will be a little bit safer around him. At least get rid of the glasses. I can't think of a single man in the bureau who wears them. It comes out of a theme that runs throughout the entire film about appearances are going to be deceiving. And so you want to read Ed Exley as weak because he wears glasses or you want to read something into the whole Patchett thing around cutting women to look like certain actresses. And the whole film has um, a lot of subtle hints about the difference between uh, reality and appearances. And part of what I think this starts to lead to is a lot of the flavor of the film, and I think we're going to get into it in a bit, around, say, the magazine Hush Hush or around Vincennes's show that he's the technical advisor on Badge of Honor, because it really is another thing about Doing this film as a throwback film set in the early 50s, it really is looking at the underbelly of um, Los Angeles as Dream City. And even though it seems like it might seem like an overreading or a stretch to say that Ed Exley, with or without glasses, is part of that kind of narrative framing, I think that that's really. Uh, the case, because I think it is true that at the point at which he wants to get photographed, he will take his glasses off because even though he is going to be the analytical one who wants to try to stay on the moral side of the law, he also is going to finally make his reputation by being a Bud White style tough guy. So appearances truly 
are deceiving in his case, just like the the great line about Bud White that is said by the coroner, he's a lot smarter than he looks, I think is part of a major theme that runs throughout the whole film. Yeah, there's major real versus unreal happening in this movie. You touched upon so much of that just now. One of the things that we haven't talked about is the homosexual aspects of the film as far as so many of the actors, or I should say the characters who are playing actors in the film are homosexual. And at this point in the world, people couldn't be out like they can be today, which was a a total shame. And because of that shame that was associated with it, people have to hide that. And that's one of those things that Sid Hutchins has dirt on as far as who's queer, who's not queer, you know, who, who takes drugs, who's straight, who does this, who does that. But having, yeah, those badge of honor guys who are pretending to be cops, pretending to be straight, Jack Vincennes either protects them or sells them out. You know, there's the one actor, Matt Reynolds, who he is involved with a uh, pot bust early on in the film, and he finds the Fleur de Lee card. Another Australian actor. Another Australian actor, yeah. And he wasn't even like Simon Baker in this movie. He had another, like another name appended to that. Yeah, a lot of people remember him from, God, what was that movie that he was, or uh, the Mentalist. He was in The Mentalist. The TV series The Mentalist. He was in uh, the the George Romero. What was it? The the fourth Land of the Dead. Yes. But yeah, this whole idea of him coming back and then being set up to go out with Ellis Lowe, the district attorney, who we saw from the early part of the movie, and then that Ellis Lowe was also gay and also pretending to be straight. So. Uh, and then, you know, God, we can say the, all the Australians who are copying these amazing uh, American accents. There's also that level of unreality to, <laughs> to this as well. I'm, I'm, I was more fascinated by how the script is structured in terms of you have like a lot of repeat things happening. And yet it's 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 each time it's done differently. So there's there's no sense of redundancy, you know, because there are characters that interview the same characters twice. Uh, Patrick gets interviewed twice by two different characters, but each scene is entirely different. Uh, Stampinato gets interviewed twice by two different characters, approached in different ways, but basically asking, you know, like, like both with the same mission to get the same kind of answers. Uh, I'm trying to think of who else. Uh, even Lynn is approached in two different ways from two different characters with the same means to an end. And I thought that was interesting as from a script writing, uh, writing standpoint, how they managed to avoid any sense of redundancy and repeating these things. Because once like a second character approaches one specific character, we already know the answer because we had another character already interview them. Right. So how do you make this second time? Like, like how do you justify having this happen a second time without boring your audience? Right. And I thought that was a very interesting thing about the film. Well, a lot of it is what information will they reveal to one person under one set of circumstances versus revealing to another person under another set of circumstances to go back to the hookers who are cut to look like prostitutes. There's that weird scene of the councilman with Lynn Bracken, and they actually have a Veronica Lake movie on in the background as she looks like Veronica Lake. I mean, it must be kind of a weird thing to be seeing a prostitute who looks like someone who's actually on the movie that's they're watching. I, 
I personally, I haven't experienced that, but it must be kind of a strange instance. And it was interesting the way that Hanson frames her to have Veronica Lake on behind her as this double. It's almost that mirror image that you're talking about with Exley always kind of being reflected in mirrors. And speaking of mirrors, that's one of those great moments that we have in this film is when Jack Vincennes manages to have a crisis of conscience as he's looking at the $50 bill that he's getting paid to set up Matt Reynolds for a second time and looking at himself in the mirror at this bar and that he puts the $50 down on the glass and walks out of the bar after he gives himself a long, hard look in the mirror. And that's really the turning point for Vincennes. And we've had this whole thing of Bud White kind of getting smarter as this movie's going on. And Vincennes is actually kind of moving more towards the moral center as this goes along, because at the beginning, Vincennes is just about schmoozing, being part of this TV show, busting people for Sid Hutchins, and again, putting on a show and pretending to be this big Hollywood guy like they call him hollywood jack at times or the big v but he also goes by trash can jack so which is it and i think he's somewhere in the middle between hollywood jack and trash can jack that part of the film starts to constantly remind me of a great line by dudley smith when he is trying to educate bud white and he says don't start trying to do the right thing you haven't got the practice And in many ways, all of these characters are really flawed. And I think that's what it gets at when you start talking about this ambivalence around something like Trash Can Jack is how this film does a great job of having three very strong characters who all have three very different flaws and all of their flaws end up getting um, revealed or used, uh, mostly attempted to be used by Dudley Smith. I mean, to go back to something you said at the very beginning of this podcast, I think it's really interesting that Dudley Smith wanted to be the puppet master and thought he fully understood how to manipulate Exley, Vincennes, and White. And ultimately, it was the flaws of those three characters that exerted themselves as some kind of strength that upturned the apple cart for Dudley Smith. If Bud White was just the goon cop, uh, Dudley Smith would have won. If Vincennes was just Hollywood Jack, he would have won. If Ed actually had just stayed moralistic Ed, he would have won. And part of what I think the genius is of this film is that what ends up betraying Dudley Smith is he couldn't read the character flaws of the three protagonists and the way that he um, set everything in motion with the other great line that I just think is the dialogue in this film is sensational. When he's when he finally sets in motion um, uh, Bud White to go after um, Ed Exley, and he's like, right now I wouldn't want to be Ed Exley for all the whiskey in Ireland. And so you get this sense that when I start to hear about the way you were setting up the last point, Mike, I really start to think that that's crucial to why this film can bear repeated watchings because it's not a straightforward tale. And every time I watch it, I see how many different ways the screenplay and the direction shades these different truths to these characters. And they're all very prismatic. And throughout the film, they all have different angles on them. You know, one thing that came up the last time that I was watching this that 
wasn't necessarily there the time before was watching the Kevin Spacey character. We originally were going to do this episode back in November of last year before things kind of went awry with me. And at that point, Kevin Spacey being gay was pretty much an open secret in Hollywood. I think most people just pretty much figured, yeah, Kevin Spacey, he's gay, he just doesn't admit it. And then stuff happened and all kinds of stuff happened. And now watching this movie and him outing actors who are gay and kind of playing off of these actors who are gay and who want to, you know, stay in the closet or not be outed by Hutchins. It has a whole different meaning to it now and something that is, is extra extracurricular to the film, but now carries a little bit more weight to it. It was interesting rewatching this now that we have all this knowledge about Kevin Spacey, right? I think he's very good in the film. I think he nails the Dean Martin of the LAPD essence they wanted to achieve with this character. I, I, I find myself, I found myself a little distracted by his Sean Connery as James Bond hairpiece a little bit. <laughs> but there is one moment in the film that takes me out of it in not a good way. And it's the scene where Exley confronts him and says, what, what made you want to become a cop? And he responds by saying, I don't remember. That's the moment where I'm very conscious that Spacey is acting. I, 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 I don't know why that, that, that bothers me. I'm irritated by his delivery. I feel it's very, very, uh, it's trying very hard to find the emotion and what he's saying in his voice kind of thing. Because uh, I find Spacey to be a very mannered actor. You know, I'm very conscious that he's doing these tricks, you know, when he, when he, when he performs. And I, in, in L.A. Confidential, that thing that he does works for Vincent. It works for that character he plays. Uh, but there was that one moment where he was being real for a moment. And that's where he lost me as an actor. I remember watching it this time and noticing that um but i wouldn't i didn't place it as a false note as it really was out of keeping with what his wheelhouse is like in all those hush hush scenes where he's really putting on an act i mean spacey can do that in spades all day long i mean that's the genius of what he does when he's kaiser soje and the usual suspects or what he does in swimming with sharks when he tries to exude that kind of false front he does really well. But when he tried to get real, there's the hollow note. I'm with that. Um, The other part that I thought was really strange with our contemporary knowledge of what Kevin Spacey has gone through over the last year is really just the Simon Baker scene um, as Reynolds and the Ellis Lowe uh, pimping him out to Ellis Lowe. That seems really uncomfortable now yeah. um, in ways with extra textual information in a way that that scene was not awkward in 1997. It's a little harder to watch on DVD in 2018. That moment that you were talking about, that false note as far as why did you want to become a policeman, it's also a tough act to follow because we've just had the Rolo Tomasi speech from Guy Pierce, And the Rolo Tomasi speech and what Rolo Tomasi is and what it represents and what it does for the film is one of those most brilliant moments for me as far as the screenplay goes. Because we have this whole thing where 
Which is not in the novel. Not in the novel whatsoever. And this is Guy Pierce as Ed Exley just kind of spits out the name Rollo Tomasi. Rollo Tomasi. Is there more to that or am I supposed to guess? Rollo was a purse snatcher. My father ran into him off duty. And he shot my father six times and got away clean. No one even knew who he was. I just made the name up to give him some personality. What's your point? Rolo Tomasi's the reason I became a cop. I wanted to catch the guys who thought they could get away with it. It was supposed to be about justice. Then somewhere along the way, I lost sight of that. Why'd you become a cop? I don't remember. That story is so powerful that it's really tough, I think, to follow up with that. But I agree that he should have come back a little bit stronger. And especially, he could have come back a little bit stronger because... If you read the book like Eric did and like the rest of us have now, we know why Vincennes, you know, we don't necessarily know why Vincennes became a cop, but we know what drives him. We know what drives him from the very beginning of L.A. Confidential, the book, where we hear this story about he was on the sauce, was on Benny's, was doing all these drugs and ended up killing two innocent people and the guilt that he carries about that. And so that's one of those moments where we're losing a lot from the book, but then we're gaining a lot with the movie. We're losing Jack Vincennes at this point, but we're gaining Rolo Tomasi. And Rolo Tomasi just is this amazing shorthand that takes us from one point in the book, probably like three or 400 pages in, and manages to teleport us about 700 pages past that. (laughs) Well, but it's a clever solution, Mike. I mean, one of the challenges that was always going to happen with adapting the novel to the screenplay is at some point, um, you had to be able to get Ed Exley and Bud White to understand how deep the corruption went. And you had to eventually find a way for Dudley Smith to be at this pyramid of just a kind of filthy LAPD circa the 1950s. And you're going to do it in a much more condensed time frame because the novel goes over a much longer period of time. And as such, filmmakers have a really tough time um, cinematically, um, and this goes back to just 1940s film noir, if you're trying to do police corruption, whether it's where the sidewalk ends or any sort of police procedural that deals with police corruption, outside of the cliche shots, which you have a plenty of, of Ed actually going to the records room or looking through ledgers, there's really, you know, detective work is painful, boring, non-cinematic work. It's not the exciting part. A punch to the face is exciting. Opening up a ledger in the dead records room is not exciting. And so Rolo Tomasi is a verbal um, clue that can be passed in one of the most clever ways I've ever seen in any film, how you pass a dead man's note to the living. Um, And I give huge props to the screenplay for doing it this way. And you're right, it condenses about 300 pages in the book that work splendidly in literary form, but that wouldn't work on screen with any sort of cinematic dynamism. And Rolo Tomasi is not only memorable, it's concise. And like I said, for me, it's one of the best letters from the dead tropes, a deus ex machina almost, that I've, uh, in almost any neo noir that 
um, I'm a fan of. I was also going to say the role of Tomasi leads to a moment with, with uh, Kevin Spacey's character that I think actually improves in the novel. Because I think that although the character does die in the novel, I think he dies in a way that's kind of, I kind of shrugged, whereas it has it has impact in the movie. Well, it has impact in a couple ways, because that's the moment that we realize that Dudley Smith is bad. And that's also the moment when he gives that thank you, Rich, for Dead Man's note to Dudley to basically pass to Exley. So it's just like that one-two punch there. And yeah, that is a really shocking moment. It's also incredibly sad. We're finally getting to really like this character, and his life is cut short at that moment. And, and I, just, I just think it's more powerful emotionally to have, to have him go out that way. Yeah, because we've had him team up with Exley now. We've had them go out and brace suspects. We've had that moment with Johnny Stompanato, which was one of the only times that we see Exley laugh or smile in this entire film. And so it's it's a really great light moment and really helps us connect with these characters. And then, yeah, it's like two scenes later and the guy's gone. And yeah, it was a real shock the first time I ever saw that on screen. And it still remains kind of shocking. The way it's directed, it's it's I keep using this a lot. Masterful. It's a master class on how to approach the unexpected. There's 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 no telegraphing at all. And the way they do that is is just just straight on. Oh, would you like some tea? Sure, I'll have some tea. And there's these little things they do as actors, both both him and Cromwell, where there's no tip off, none as to what about what's about to happen. And so it's just really well done. And that look on Guy Pierce's face when Dudley asks him to look up Rolo Tomasi, it's one of those wonderful moments too, where it's like you are just, it's kind of almost like that moment when the elevator door opens and you can't tell what's on the other side. And you're just watching Guy Pierce's face and trying to see any sort of reaction. And he knows he can't give a reaction at that point. I love that. I love that stillness of him. It's just like, you can see the gears working behind the eyes, but he cannot give any sort of thing on the face. And I think that's a really great thing that's it always reminds me of that moment of uh de niro in uh, uh goodfellas when he's got so much stuff on his mind and it's basically just a push-in that scorsese does of de niro smoking nervously and you can tell that the gears are just working like mad inside of, of jimmy conway's head uh, but you know we, we don't get any sort of dialogue at that point and again it's much of more of a quiet moment but just guy pierce you can tell that he's just connecting all these dots the fucking switchboard is going off and he's plugging in all these things as soon as rollo tomasi comes out of dudley's mouth but he can't let any of that slip edmund i'm gonna have a word with you we're trying to run down a lead on an associate of vincennes the records check has led to a dead end. What's the name? Rolo Tomasi. You ever heard Vincennes mention him? No, no, I haven't. Well, probably nothing. Still, keep your eyes open, eh, boy? We've had Ed team up with the Big V and had, unfortunately, the Big V die. And then we get the real team up, which is 
Exley and White. And I love that moment when those two come together, and especially that Bud White is there to basically kill Exley, that he's been set up by Sid Hutchins and Dudley, and that he's there to murder Ed. And Ed there shouting, Think, goddammit, think! (laughs) (laughs) Well, but also part of what's um, very interesting is how quickly they have to go through their changes because it's a very rapid transformation in terms of screen time. We it's a it it is a two and a half hour movie basically, and more than half the film is taken up with setting up their inevitable collision as opposites. And so when that collision happens, part of what I think is so masterful of what I think makes it a absolutely fabulous movie is how after they have the blowout in the um, records room, um, how they turn around and start working on each other. And Mike, you mentioned one of your favorite scenes. One of my favorite scenes is when they go to interrogate DA Lowe, when they're interrogating the uh, district attorney and they do their good cop, bad cop routine. It's absolutely marvelous. And when they're walking out of the office, like, is that how you did good cop, bad cop? I mean, you, this is where the idea for the Exley files, when we finally do our limited uh, series and we pitch it to HBO, you know, that's, that's that team up we all want to see more of because at that point, them working together with Exley being a little bit more like Bud White and Bud White being more like Ed Exley is a phenomenal screen pairing. These two Aussies, you just think, could kick the shit out of anybody in L.A. at that point. That's the point I wanted to make, and that's pretty much agreeing with what you're both saying. What I really think is interesting about the Exley-White uh, dynamic is that in a lesser written piece or or a lazy written piece, we've seen this thing before where you have two two leads are set up to be antagonists and then uh, towards the end of the film or towards the, the the last act they wind up allying and coming together and having a better understanding of each other and you know we have to work as a team you know that kind of thing but there's still market differences between the two you know one's rolling their eyes because the other one's too crazy a la you know um the uh, a lethal weapon movies or stuff like that you know uh here what i think is really interesting once they realize they have to work together from that point on they're completely in sync which i think is really interesting from the moment they go into the da's office to, to when they get to pratchett's uh, house at that point it's like they just use hand signals to communicate to each other and they both know exactly what to do And then the other part that you just also see is it's also a film that wears its scar tissue out front. And so like towards the end of the film, after they run the good cop, bad cop routine, and you finally see Ed Exley uh, go catch up with uh, Lynn, the Kim Bassinger character, they're both bruised. And I just love the fact that both um, Ed and Lynn are beaten up by the same guy, Bud White. And by the end of the movie, no one is even physically coming out of this clean. There, this is a this is a bruised and battered world, and I just think there are just so many of these moments of triangulation that are really done swiftly but memorably, and that is really hard to do in cinema because lots of times the things go by too fast, they're not memorable, and yet it seems that this film drops off memorable dialogue scenes and moments um, on par with most great films. 
Well, I've talked a lot about Guy Pearce and how much I love Guy Pearce in this movie, but we really cannot give any sort of short shrift to Russell Crowe in this because he is doing an amazing job. And I think for me, one of those top moments is leading up to what you were just talking about. That's the moment when he comes and confronts Lynn and he's there pacing in the rain and he looks like a wild tiger just moving back and forth almost behind the bars of a cage and when he lashes out at lynn and goes against everything that we know that bud white stands for which is this code that he holds most high to protect women and when he suddenly becomes the abuser it just rips the heart out of you and just shows us how amazing crow is in this role and i I, not to say that kim basinger is any slouch slouch in this i think that this is the best that i've ever seen basinger on film though i haven't seen everything that she's done i mostly knew her from you know blind date and the marrying man again and some of these movies that maybe were a little bit more lightweight and here she really pulls off a lot of great stuff. And this to me was one of those roles where it was just like, wow, Kim Basinger just showed me that she can really fucking act. And yeah, apparently also, the Academy agreed with you. But also with Russell Crowe, I mean, part of what's impossible to ever read backwards cleanly, if I were to say, let's connect the cinematic dots and – I, like you, Mike, I am a big fan of Russell Crowe in this film. I think it's a tremendous role. I think he, um, this part is really um, extremely a, a great fit for him. But if I had to say, connect the cinematic dots between Romper Stomper and A Beautiful Mind, you can't do it without LA Confidential. This is what shows a director like Ron Howard that you could put Russell Crowe, who really could have just had a career as kind of the muscle or the heavy in films, and play a thinking man's part. This is the film that allowed Hollywood to see a greater range in Crowe. And so again, I think that's a a testament to the casting agent and to the performance that Curtis Hansen coaxes out of him. But I absolutely adore Russell Crowe in this film. And I think he, like Guy Pierce, goes on a very complex narrative arc that, for my money, almost hits not a single false note over two hours and 28 minutes. Well, the one thing I couldn't buy when they teamed up was that whole thing where he's holding Guy Pierce down and Guy Pierce says, I have to save Martha. And he says, What? Why'd you say that? Name? <laughs> And it ends up that that Bud White's dead mother was named Martha, too. That's just that's a little too far for me. When those two guys finally do end up teaming up, like we were saying, and I love what you're talking about, uh, Eric, with this whole idea of the hand signals, when they are just working like like Danny Lee and Chow Yun-Fat at the end when they're at the Victory Motel and just like throwing clips to one another and just going at it and taking out all the guys outside of the Victory Motel. It is just the moment of blissful catharsis that I've been waiting for with this whole movie. Not to say that I was bored, but it just really leads up to this moment at the Victory Motel. And it is just, it, it is one of those great moments of ultraviolence that I just enjoy so much seeing these two guys working in tandem and just taking out all these scumbags outside. 
Yeah, the analogy for me, it's it's like you got these two warring countries, and then when they finally meet, they realize they actually speak the same language, and and that's what these two characters are like. And that that climatic scene, it's just like they're in sync. You know, they just have to look at each other. Up, oh, clip. You know, it's just these things where it's like, okay, I know exactly what you want. Here it is, and they agree with each other. That's the other thing too. You know, it's like it's not simply like hand signal. Nope. Does not do it that way. No, it's like, you're right. I'm going to do that. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting how they built up to that. The film, even though it has its violence in it. So you have, you know, the set pieces in the film, you have bloody Christmas, which is the fight at the jail that opens it. You have, the Night Owl crime scene, which is the major uh, case to be cracked in the film. But then by the time you get at the Victory Motel uh, shootout, it is literal overkill. I mean, there is an awful lot of gunfire because Dudley clearly is leaving nothing up to chance. And this is really um, – um, to me, it was almost like a Butch Cassidy Sundance Kid moment um, where they're fighting impossible odds. And what was funny to me is if you start to think about that scene against overwhelming firepower, you know, where Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid ends with um, them going out into clearly their own death in a hail of bullets, but it stops on a freeze frame. Here, I think you start to get into some of the nuances of the plot and um it's again slightly different from the book but what becomes fascinating in this final shootout is how even with some of the unreality of the shootout scene and we see this from time to time the other film that i think does this type of hyperbolic shootout scene is like james bond and skyfall you know we've just we've seen this before the two guys in a hut with just a few guns but you're going to be able to keep 16 machine guns and half the police force at bay but the goal of it is what saves the scene for me and that final slip of Dudley withholding up the badge is just it's a delicious moment and and it's worth kind of the hyperbolic shootout that precedes it which takes us all the way back to that opening line of questions when he asks Exley if he can shoot a man in the back and that's what Exley has to do in order to get his justice and I love that I love that that's what happens in that moment of him shooting him in the back and going back to what you were talking about, Eric, with just how beautiful this film is with those cop cars coming up and the lights and having these guys silhouetted there and having that gunshot come out and the way that Dudley falls in the frame. Gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. The arc that continues with Exley and white jazz, while he isn't quite corrupt in the way Smith is, he becomes pretty much just as devious. And to to a certain extent where he becomes sort of a pseudo antagonist in that novel. But Dudley Smith is still alive. But Cromwell is fantastic in this coming off of Babe. And then he's suddenly cast in this part where, you know, he's a badass. Yeah. No. And I mean, and, and he has some tough lines of dialogue. It's still, you know, not as easy as it looks on the page to say the word boyo. Um, it's a weird, it's a weird uh, diminutive uh, phraseology. He's extremely well cast. I love him as a heavy in this because of initially he's not necessarily coded from the very beginning as a heavy. 
um, in the way that he turns out because of his connection to all of the corruption, especially the corruption involving Meeks and Stensland um, that Exley uncovers in the records room. But I am with you that this is a type of film that, as I've been listening to everyone talk about it, I think we could just keep going off on any of these characters and character actors because this film in its major cast just has uniformly consistent, believable, and exciting performances that every time I see this film, that's why it's still holding up for me two decades later, that there is nuance and depth even in Dudley because we've seen the corrupt head of the task force guy in way too many films. And here again, it maintains its credibility all the way to the end. And if the first time you see the film, you're really still not quite sure which Ed Exley is going to show up at the point that he has a shotgun pointing at Dudley's back. Is he or is he not going to shoot? And when you're watching a film and you still have that question in the climactic scene, that's just good filmmaking for me. So we're going to take a break and play an interview. Now, I I can't remember where I mentioned this before. I think it was actually on a different podcast, um, the After Movie Diner. But I had the strangest time setting up interviews for this episode because you know like we were saying when russell crowe and guy pierce started out with this movie i can't say that they were nothing but they were much less in demand than they are presently so i got hard no's from their people right away when i asked for interviews kevin spacey's person hard no right away devito and basinger i got the strangest series of questions from their representatives and it was all about who else do you have on this podcast? And it was like, well, at the moment, I don't have anybody because I'm trying to get Mr. DeVito or Ms. Basinger. And I just went round and around where it was like, well, when you get more people, let us know. And it was just this whole bizarre thing. So finally, I ended up lying to both of their representatives and telling DeVito's person that we have Basinger and telling Basinger's people that we had DeVito. Uh, and neither of them came through. So I did end up getting James Elroy, who I didn't want to interview. I had interviewed James Elroy years and years ago. And I had, I wrote about Elroy years and years ago as well in, in Cashiers to Cinemart. And I have watched all of these documentaries because there have been at least like six documentaries about Elroy made over the years. And that was probably when I when I wrote that article in the late 90s, there have probably been another six since then. And he tells the same stories. He's got like the patter that he does. And so like if you go out and you look even at Wikipedia where you see quotes about what he feels about the making of the movie of LA Confidential, you're going to be able to read almost along with this interview when I ask him things and you can't break him from that patter. And I was really hoping I could break him from the patter, but I was unable to. So if you want to fast forward to the end of the interview, I won't be upset. So I'm just putting that out there. I'm curious to get your take on the interview, Eric, if it's any good or not, but I guess we'll, we'll save that till after we take this break. Here's some words from our sponsors. And then you'll hear from Mr. James Elroy, the author of LA confidential. Hello from Cinema Detroit. We are Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema and also the only first-run, seven-day-a-week movie theater in greater downtown. 
we deliver an eclectic mix of mainstream art, indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine or a DJ mixing a set, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro area, the state of Michigan, or the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features a unique setting in a former furniture store and a warm neighborhood atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.org, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you soon at 4126 3rd Street in the city, 48201. Well, Eric, would you say that we're just two dudes who love talking about movies over at the Culture Cast? I mean, yeah, I don't know if dudes is the correct nomenclature, though. <laughs> dudes, bros. Okay, what about movie nerds? No, okay, uh, dudes is fine. Not nerds. Anything but movie nerds. Well, over here at the Culture Cast, we talk about new movies, overlooked gems, classics, and some films that cause us to question our sanity twice a week. Yeah, Hot to Trot comes to mind for sure. Yeah, Hot to Trot was a real mess. So make sure to check out the Culture Cast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> music-related movies. iTunes, Facebook, or download direct from seehere.podbeam.com. The See Here Podcast. It's a blast. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. I kind of want to know what your relationship to movies is. I know that you've done some work, like you've worked with Eddie Muller with The Prowler, and I know you did a commentary on Crime Wave. Growing up in Los Angeles, obviously movie town, I'm curious, what was your relationship with movies as a kid? Well, I love a good movie. There's there's that. And I grew up in Los Angeles, and my my father was a Hollywood bottom feeder, and he used to do Glenn Ford's income tax. And I remember being a six or seven year old kid, and my old man introducing me to Glenn Ford and explaining that he was a movie star. 
And it's that part of L.A. which is oddly egalitarian, where stoops like my old man would be Rita Hayworth's business manager. Okay, here's a story about my old man that that explains a lot of this. When I'm about 11 years old, my dad tells me, apropos of nothing, very funny, profane guy. Hey, kid, I fucked Rita Hayworth. At which point I said, fuck you, dad. This is our relationship. You did not. You lie like a rug. Now, and he explained to me that he was her business manager in the late 40s, around the time I was born, and in fact, arranged her wedding to Ali Khan in Paris in 1949. But he was a tremendous bullshitter, so I tended not to believe him. Then in 75, 10 years after my father's death, I saw a Hayworth biography in a bookstore in L.A. in Westwood Village. It was very, very strange because I was getting up the guts to hit on a young woman are you ready? Who was about six foot seven? You know, and you know, I'm six three, and she was the only woman I think at that time I'd ever seen that was taller than me. And she was beautiful, and she was, well, she was beautiful in a, in a, a raw bone, groovy way. And I think she was waiting in the bookstore for. I mean, all men, so to speak, were shorter than her. So that you know that that that's where she had to, you know, find her prey. But I was getting up the guts to do it when I noticed this the Sayworth bio, and I looked uh, my old man's name up in the index, and yeah, he was her business manager in, you know, in the late forties, maybe circa nineteen fifty tops, and did arrange her wedding to Ali Khan in Paris in nineteen forty nine. And when I looked up from the book, the six foot seven woman was gone. Act now or forever hold your peace. I think of that woman often and I pray for her. And I, I hope she's happy. I hope she raised a real crew of, you know, male and female basketball players. 75 was, uh, that was the year your dad died. Wasn't that also the year? No, 65. Oh, 65. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. Because I was going to say 75, that was also around the time that you got involved in writing. No, I started writing in early in 79. How did that come about? And, and were you self-taught or did you go to school for any of that? Uh, I, 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 was, I, just, I just read. And the, the more I think about it, the more I realize that, you know, to this day, you know, you, you can point to my wild youth and you can point to, you know, the, the county jail time that I did for, for various misdemeanors or my mother's 1958 murder, big traumatic experiences. They made me a writer and it's all a lot of hoo-ha. I love to read and that's, that's the long and short of it. And I read a shitload of books. Then when I, I sat down to write, I always wanted to be a novelist. I wrote the kind of book that I love to read. Who were some of your favorite authors? You know, I love crime. Well, you know, if you have to say who's the number one influence ever, it would be Joseph Lombard, Los Angeles, policeman turned novelist. And the, the early Wamba in particular, the, the New Centurions, the Blue Knight, the Onion Field, the Choir Boys, the Black Marble. Not much after that. I think the Wamba peaked early. And then the, the few, the, the great novellas of, of murder of James M. Cain, both on Strikes Twice and Double Indemnity, and then 
his books, Mildred Pierce and Serenade, and the detective novels of Ross MacDonald, and Dashiell Hammond, certainly, and then the odd volumes that were, that were crime novels, at least in strict definition of form, by writers not considered to be crime writers, that explicated great historical crimes, fictionally, very deftly and imaginatively. Imaginative reconstructions. There's three that come to mind, which is chronologically arranged by publication date, Compulsion by Meyer Levin, which is the Leopold Loeb murder of 1924, and then True Confessions by John Gregory Dunn, which is the Black Dahlia murder case, heavily fictionalized, and then Libra by Don DeLillo, the Kennedy assassination. Growing up in Detroit, we've got the auto industry. So no matter what you do, you usually end up working somehow in the periphery or directly for the big three. Is that at all like how it is in Los Angeles with the movie industry? I think most people don't have anything to do with it. That's just uh, the statistics of it. You know, my father, throughout most of the time that I knew him, and I knew him from my birth in 48 to his death in 65, had nothing to do with movies. My mother was a registered nurse. She wet nursed a, a boozed out retired film comedian at one point, but that's about as far as it went. It's the prevalence of motion pictures in the public imagination that makes people think that way. After you start to become a, a known writer, a known quantity, how soon after that does Hollywood come knocking, or do you go knocking to them? Well, I had film options for my for my books, and I was, it was explained to me, and, and very accurately, that you take the option money, that's it, and they'll probably never make your book into a movie, and if they do, they'll screw it up past redemption, which is more or less proved to be the case, but they'll give you money and for this, for a book you've already written. And as I always tell people, say at book events, when I'm asked about the movies, I say, money is the gift that no one ever returns. The color, green, is always flattering, and the size, large, always fits. And that's how I feel about it. <clears throat> In 1995, around the time that American Tabloid was published, I met a man who became very close to me, my film agent, he still is, Joel Gottler, and he said, you want to write for the movies and make significant money writing motion picture scripts that will never be turned into movies? I said, sure. And that was it. Now, I've always had this level of distance on all of it. Don't give me your bullshit about who's going to be in the movie, who's going to write the soundtrack, who's going to direct it, any of that. You're paying me to write the screenplay. It's probably not going to get made. Someone will write behind it. And that's that. And so the motion pictures that have been made from the original screenplays that I've written are all execrably bad, and I was handsomely compensated. And I have that level of, of distance on it, and now I don't do it anymore, and I get a handsome pension. 
from the WGA. I know. Um, what, what What is your famous quote about how you like hamburgers, but you don't take them seriously, and the same goes for movies? I love a good movie, but, you know, in the, in the same way that I love a good hamburger. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much it. When somebody is turning one of your books into a movie, and it does reach that point of no return where it actually is going to get made, do you even give a rat's ass about that, or are you just sitting there going, oh, I hope they don't fuck it up? I don't care. No. I don't, nah, I don't, you know what? I don't care. It's I'm nothing but grateful. It's all gravy. I've written the books to be books and nothing else. That's it. When something comes around that is good, like LA Confidential, which I would go so far to say is great, what's your relationship with that kind of a film? I like the movie less and less. I don't think it's great. I don't think it holds up. I think a lot of it isn't even good. I could tell you candidly, especially now that Curtis Hanson, rest in peace, has left us, but Brian Helgeland, who won the Academy Award for writing it, hates the movie. There's not a single line reading in that motion picture by any of the actors that I approve of. I think it's largely miscast. I think it's shallow. What it is, positively, is very lively and proficient. But I remember sitting at the Cannes Film Festival with with Brian, and he couldn't even stand watching it. Oh, no. Why does that bother you? Because I know he put so much work into it, and if he doesn't even like the work that is associated with his name, that's got to be rough. Well, I think he used it as, I know he used it as a springboard to make the movies that he wants. Well, then I know he got fucked over by Mel Gibson with the whole Parker payback thing. You know, who knows about this stuff? I introduced payback for Brian, who remains a good friend at the Arclight Cinema in L.A. And we had to we had to screen it twice because they had a fire alarm go off during the screening the first time. And so we had to vacate the theater, and then we, I came back a couple of weeks later, and we did it again. This time we got through the movie. Did the L.A. Quartet, you do the Underworld USA trilogy, and now you're back to doing the second L.A. Quartet. How is it kind of mm-hmm. coming back to Los Angeles? Well, you usually stay in Los Angeles as far as your milieu, but how is it kind of revisiting this and going a little farther back with these characters and with this setting? Well, I left L.A. in 1981. I moved back to L.A. in 2006 and lived there until the summer of 15. I live in Denver now. And so, you know, that's that. That's the travelogue. But throughout a very large swath of my career, I didn't write L.A. set novels. American Tabloid, The Cold 6000, and Bloods Are Over are set. Foreign Outposts, Cuba, Vietnam, the Dominican Republic, and Haiti, and throughout the United States. I I had the idea of consolidating my entire career as a historical novelist by returning to Los Angeles and creating the second LA Quartet, which would take characters 
from the L.A. Quartet set in L.A. between 1946 and 1958. That's the Black Dahlia, the Big Nowhere, L.A. Confidential, and White Jazz, and the Underworld USA Trilogy, American Tabloid, The Cold 6,000 Bloods, a Rover, The World at Large, America at Large, between 58 and 72. Characters, real life and fictional, from those two books, placing them in L.A. during World War II as significantly younger people. So that's what I'm doing now. And Perfidia is the first volume. It was published in the fall of 14, and I'm writing the second book now. Now, this is kind of obnoxious, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Can you tell me a little bit about your process of writing? I remember reading that you write everything by longhand first. Is that still the mm-hmm. case? Yeah, I've never learned to use a computer, and I don't type. And I, the outline, well, the outlines of these massive books of mine are massive in and of themselves, and I have them typed up, and they're written by hand. I have a woman who types for me in Los Angeles, and that's how I do everything, painstakingly, methodically, slowly, deliberately, exactly. I guess it's the old, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. That's it, and more and more I realize that it's it's this allegiance to and adherence to fundamentals that has saved me in my career again and again and again. So you come up with the outline. These things, I imagine, have to be pretty intricate when you're outlining this just because of all the characters that you have and all of the interweaving stories that take place, or does some of that come up while you're writing the book? No, I don't improvise. I improvise in, in original scenes. I mean, in in the scenes as I write them, you know, I extrapolate fictionally, but always within the confines of the outline. I was curious, how did you get involved with uh, working with Eddie Muller in the Film Noir Society? Well, I wasn't really, I don't really work with them. I, where did I meet Eddie? Eddie shit, I don't remember. Who knows? Probably in San Francisco. I lived in San Francisco briefly in 05 and 06. And I've introduced movies for Eddie at the Castro Theater because he has the big film noir fest there, you know, at the mighty Castro Theater. I think it must seat 2,000 people. And I've done DVD commentary for Eddie, you know, with Eddie and introduced films for him at the Cinematheque in Los Angeles, which is the old Egyptian theater. I haven't seen Eddie since 14. That's that's it. You know, he, he asks, and I'm always happy to see him. And, you know, we have some yucks watching a movie in a studio where, I forget how they do it, but they, they pause the movie and you can talk over it. Or Since these are films that I've, I've seen, and usually more than once, I can, I can talk over them and say funny shit. I did the video commentary for, or the DVD commentary for the David Fincher film Zodiac. And it's, it's, it's raucous to say the least. And, the uh, the Paramount people were apparently quite shocked by some of the things that I said. So some of my best stuff didn't get into the final cut of the DVD. I was there with one of the producers and the screenwriter. So, you know, I, I enjoy doing that stuff once in a great while. 
Well, speaking of Zodiac, what do you think of the guy who claims that his dad is not only the Black Dahlia killer, but also the Zodiac killer? I don't rag on any of these guys. Whatever is going on, I don't, I don't credit one single Black Dahlia theory. I went out on a limb for Steve O'Dell, the real Black Dahlia venture. I liked him. Retired L.A. policeman. You know, I'm I'm very soft-hearted where LAPD is concerned. He was, you know, a mentor of one of my best policeman friends. And so I led with my heart and co-signed his theory and came to disbelieve it. So I've got egg on my face on that one. No one knows who killed Elizabeth Short. We're not meant to know. It's over. People should grow up and quit going on the Internet and quit posting all those gore photographs and, you know, the old expression, get alive. You know, you are obviously associated with Los Angeles and with crime so much. Are you a fan of Los Angeles crime films or what are some of your favorite movies? You know, I, I love a good crime movie, and they don't have to be terribly profound. As far as home noir goes, it's never been an inspiration for me. I'm from Los Angeles, and the best way to put it uh, is that I was born in L.A., the crime, the film noir epicenter, at the height of the film noir era. I was born in 1948, and I like looking at these movies because, holy shit, there you go, Pitfall, 19. 19- 48, the year I was born, directed by Andre de Toth. There's Wilshire and Fairfax with the May Company there, and Simon's Drive-In across the street. And it really is 1948. It's the, the era of my most marvelous imaginings. That's my relationship to the L.A.-based crime novel. Excuse me, crime film. Can you tell me a little bit about the the other stuff that you work on currently? I know you you're probably still working on the second book of the uh, second L.A. Noir tr- uh, quartet, but I'm curious if that's you mean the L- the second L.A. quartet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I am. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's it. Everything else. Yeah. You, wow. So just right. laser focused. Right. Terrific, Mr. Elroy. Thank you so much for your time. Mr. White, let's do it again in another 25 years. All right. Sounds good. I'll put on my calendar. You got to accentuate to positive, eliminate the negative, and latch on to the affirmative. Don't mess with Mr. In-Between. All right, we are back, and we are talking about L.A. Confidential. So you, you said that you wanted to talk about the interview. Let's hear about the interview, Eric. I was fascinated by his comments on the movie because it didn't jive from what's out there on Wikipedia and what he said, like, on the DVD extras and all that stuff, that he does not like the movie. And not only that, what really kind of, like, blew my mind Brian Hageland doesn't like the movie, and he never did. And I'm like, do you think that's true? Sometimes I think that Elroy is the biggest troll out there. Like, <laughs> even when it comes to like his political views and stuff, I just think that he just says shit to get people mad. Because yeah, because at the part he's like, yeah, we're at Cannes, you know, the film, and the film was like well received at Cannes and everything. I think Hageland would be like elated. He won an Oscar for this, right, for best adaptation. 
And 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 there is there is Elroy saying, yeah, you know, after they screened the film, you know, Hegel was like, oh god, this movie's awful. And I'm like, nah, you're full of shit. Really? I I can't believe that. I cannot believe that. Yeah, this was the best thing to happen to Hegelin for a long time. Like it made him. Yeah, it did. I mean, you know, he was on his way with nine seven six evil and everything, but it really <laughs> took this film to put him on the map. And then, you know, it I led liked... him to a knight's tale. <laughs> yeah. I've heard other interviews with Elroy, so the setup that Mike had is I mean, I'm sure that he talked a lot about um his uh views about um you know, uh, well, I mean, did he, was he getting into some of the politics of, uh, the books or some of the tropes? He will talk constantly about how, you know, his novels and his, you know, his relationship with LA is about all of these, um, views that he wants to take these extreme takes on, you know, Howard Hughes or J. Edgar Hoover or the LA Police Department. And he, he, he is a bit of a, a nut for his, um, standard patter about all that. He kind of reminds me of that serial killer from Mindhunter, where he just was like the cop hanger honor kind of guy. Like I watch all the cop shows on TV. Do you know uh, Joseph Wambaugh, police story? You ever watch that? <laughs> Huge fan. Oh, I got a lot of my insights right there. What I've read in terms of like his opinion, L.A. Confidential, I've never read him say or heard him say that he didn't like the film what i did hear him say was oh the film stands on its own as a film the book exists on its own as a book and i can accept both you know that they're neither but they're separate you know and he's made comments about how he was like happy with the actor's interpretation of the roles he you know now when he goes back and revisits his book he sees guy pierce as excellent now that kind of thing and that's why this interview completely threw me off because he was like he even said like i think the it's the it's not well cast uh i think the line readings are terrible <laughs> and, and i was like whoa okay this is really interesting well, it just felt like he was trolling me, where it was just like, oh, this kid really likes this movie, so I'm in kid, right, I'm 45. This kid really likes this movie, <laughs> so I'm going to say all kinds of bad shit about it and watch him squirm. Well, you handled it really well. Thank you. You know, and that's, I didn't think you, you came across as like overly fanboyish or anything like that. Uh, it, it's I just. <laughs> well, because I wasn't, because I knew what I was getting in for. And that was the thing. Like somebody was just like, you should interview James Elroy. And I was like, oh, what the fuck? I'll see if he's available. Hopefully I'll get a no. That's like one of the few times I ever hope that I get a no. What's always tough is remember back in the day I had the show Behind the Black Mask and Shannon Clute and I, we interviewed about 28 mystery writers and it's always a mixed bag. I, I always enjoyed interviewing um, lesser known names because they wanted to talk about the craft or they really wanted to get into people getting excited about their work. And I always get confused by authors who really want to be dismissive of people who are interested in their work because it's like, you know, we're the audience and, you know, we're interested enough in your work to want to seek you out. And, you know, you might not want to have anything you personally want to add because you want to hide behind an authorial veil. But trolling is one of those things that I just don't find a lot of uh, use for. I interviewed him, I think it was right around the time that White Jazz came out. So that was what, God, early 90s, right? Uh, no, mid mid 90s. And 
when back then he used the phrase that I'd heard used several times, which was lightning in a bottle. Like, hey, listen, uh, L.A. Confidential was lightning in a bottle. We had the right people, the right time. Everything came together, came together beautifully. And he pretty much was at that point, he was dismissive about uh, dismissive about the other adaptations of his work and i will say it's a mixed bag like i personally like cop quite a bit um i'm not that huge a fan of brown's requiem which is a shame because i love michael rooker so much uh at that point like street kings hadn't come out a whole bunch of stuff that he had written hadn't come out at that point they've been and, trying to get white jazz off the ground oh yeah yeah I george have, like, clooney i have a um uh, 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 like a uh, a poster, a mock-up poster for it that had Nick Nolte's name attached to it. So that tells you how long ago that was. Speaking of uh, Elroy adaptations that take place somewhat in the same universe, uh, what about Black Dahlia? You know, uh, I had to bring that up. <laughs> no, you didn't. I no, I, 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 I. You know what, Eric? I think because we started talking about Elroy as a troll, you're like, you know what? Would be really good right now. Maybe I'll troll Mike White and Rich Edwards because. Uh, no, we don't have to talk about Black Dahlia. It's a <laughs> terrible film. Uh, it's a terrible film, but it's not a boring film by any means. I have to say I was entertained, maybe not for the right reasons. For example, Fiona Shaw is amazing. It's like she knows what kind of movie she's in, and she just like swings for the fences. So I have a real problem with um... – Hillary Swank in a lot of movies. Like I, I think that she's a fine actress, but Hillary Swank has a very distinct look, let's say. And there's a line in the film where we're talking about Mia Kirshner, who is absolutely gorgeous as Elizabeth Short. And then Hillary Swank is talking about sleeping with her. And she says, I wanted to sleep with someone who looks exactly like me. And I was just like, is that like if Steve Buscemi and George Clooney were in a movie in and they had sex and and Steve Buscemi said, I wanted to have sex with somebody that looked exactly like me. Yeah, Hilary Swank is like the quintessential square peg being forced into a round hole. She's just not right for that part at all. No one seems cast well in that movie. Yeah, it's a really odd film. It's a really weird film. And no one seems to get the cadence of what they're saying. Even De Palma, it, it's like... It's like he's using it as an excuse to roll out his greatest hits. Uh, I'm surprised there wasn't a sequence where he had a split screen event. This was back when they were still trying to force Josh Hartnett down our throats as being this this leading man that Ch Channing Tatum would eventually become. You know, it's just like, no, this guy cannot act whatsoever. Watch Hollywood Homicide. This guy cannot act. Oh, and you know what I said about the lack of hats in L.A. Confidential? There are, moments, there are scenes in this movie where I'm like, take your fucking hat off. <laughs> well, maybe you they know? got all the hats that were shipped. They were being shipped to LA Confidential. They didn't arrive on time. And so there is a whole warehouse um, on the lot. Um, no, part of what I think, I mean, this is a film that back when it came out, I did a podcast on it because I was interested in it because I've always been a bit of a De Palma fan. And you know, when he's on game, he can put together some very interesting movies. But he, the, it's almost what, what's interesting is we could almost do the anti LA Confidential podcast by 
reversing everything we said that was right about LA Confidential is everything the Black Dahlia decides to do. Like it's a remake of the LA Confidential as if you have no idea about what makes anything in the Elroy universe interesting or intriguing or part of character development. And so what we talked about the, or at least I talked about, and we kind of all had a similar sense of how it was the acting performances that made LA Confidential so coherent. It was the acting performances in the Black Dahlia that made this film so incoherent, which I just always want to point out shows you just how much of a miracle it is when a cast comes together in a genuine genuine ensemble. A film like The Asphalt Jungle, when uh, the 1950 masterpiece by John Huston, when an ensemble comes together, nothing better in film. And when an ensemble falls apart, the only two words that ever come to my mind are train and wreck. Now, refresh my mind, memory. How how does uh, Black Dahlia connect to the other novels besides the fact that it's set in L.A.? What what characters reappear? So so you have Ellis Lowe as the uh, D.A. Right. Character. I think he's the main glue when I think back on it. I believe in the novel. It's been a lot of years. I didn't I didn't reread the Black Dahlia for this podcast, but I think some of the secondary police characters come through. But it really is in many ways one of the more standalones where the big nowhere and L.A. Confidential are the heart of that quartet with White Jazz and Black Dahlia to me as the add ons. The Black Dahlia uh, is more connected in that sense, uh, kind of through the DA's office and through, and, and I could be wrong because I didn't research it for this podcast, but that's what my memory is telling me. Yeah, there, it's actually good on the Wikipedia entry for the LA Quartet because they go beyond the quartet and they actually talk about clandestine and periphita as well. And they just list out the characters uh, from these books. And of course they don't talk about all of them, but they list about 65 different characters and then we'll say this character was in this, this, and this. So like Dudley Smith was in Clandestine, The Big Nowhere, L.A. Confidential, White, White Jazz, and Periphita. And like Exley, where Exley was in, and these kind of things. So yeah, there are very few that we actually see show up in uh, Black Dahlia as opposed to some of these others. So like, you know, Bucky will show up in the Black Dahlia, but then also Periphida. And then you also have Dudley Smith and Periphida. So they kind of cross paths over there. But like Buzz Meeks is in all of them, I think. So that's one of the connectors. Though Buzz Meeks is, like I said, barely in L.A. Confidential. The L.A. Quartet is as much a fictionalized retelling of the history of L.A. in the 1950s as anything else. And so characters that you do have showing up have both real-world analogs and or they're actually kind of named the same name as uh, the real-life character. So you might have characters uh, like uh, some of the actresses or someone like uh, Howard Hughes actually show up in the book, or you would have a character uh, like Dieterling, who actually is supposed to be kind of more like a Walt Disney um, stand-in. But the point I'm trying to make is what's odd if you read the books, Buzz Meeks is essential because he kind of covers the L.A. corruption scandal line. And I think Elroy really enjoyed Buzz for that. But because police corruption 
was coded around the Exley relationship in LA Confidential, it was probably just not as necessary to have that character be prominent in the screen version. Let's talk about the pilot. I was reading two different dates for this, but I really think that this pilot came out in 2003. And then I also read that it was supposed to be part of the new Blu-ray release, but I didn't pick up the Blu-ray. I just have a, a copy that was taped off of Trio Network from – does anybody remember the Trio Network? And they had a whole weekend of um, brilliant but canceled uh, pilots that never went anywhere. And I don't know if I would necessarily call LA Confidential pilot brilliant, but it was definitely canceled. It's on one hand, you could see that they were planning out a series that was going to be more faithful to the novel. They had elements there that weren't in the novel, you know, like the, the like uh, Vincent's background a little bit. You know, you did the idea that, you know, uh, Bud White is going to investigate a series of killings, you know, that, that kind of thing. But the, the whole thing comes off like, how, how can I put this? It's like going to like a high school play. That's set in the 1950s, <laughs> but they grab like, you know, suits from the local, you know, uh, Salvation Army, throw that on. Oh, that looks period enough. I'll just put some like uh, gel in your hair, you know, and comb it back. Okay, that looks kind of 1950s. And that's what this is like. It's very lazy in its attention to detail, uh, period detail. But it probably also came too early. I don't see how in that time period, 2003, right before we started to get into peak television years with the complex narratives that we would associate with Breaking Bad or uh, shows like The Sopranos or even um, like an HBO adaptation of Mildred Pierce, which I thought was pretty well done. It really was going to be an uncomfortable slot to kind of do it as a CBS pilot because you really would want to do this as limited prestige television, not as a 24-episode buy in the sense of like Criminal Minds. And so I think I agree with you that it comes across really as um, an oddity or a curiosity now. But I would really be interested to actually, it would be fascinating to see someone, a showrunner working for, say, Netflix or HBO or Hulu, able to do this as like a six episode limited run. You know, I think you could take each of the bigger novels like The Big Nowhere and have an amazing uh, series, but it would have to be limited. It has to be well cast, but potentially this was just pitched in the time frame that just didn't match the material. I would, I personally would be interested if someone would pick this back up again because I, I wouldn't just do it around LA Confidential. I'd do it around the whole quartet and do it as limited series. Oh, well, Rich, you are in luck. Yes. Because CBS has ordered an LA Confidential pilot again. Uh, no, that should be coming no. out probably no. in 2018. Though I wouldn't be surprised if they slot this for all access so that they can say the F word and actually have the grisly violence that's inside of okay. the L.A. Quartet. Okay, I didn't I didn't want you to answer my prayers on this one that quickly. Can we move Can we move it from CBS to like HBO and then I'm going to kind of be on the vibe. I just, oh my God, I, I, I don't see it. I really don't. But but if they can maybe do it for all access and go. What would be amazing if HBO or even AMC, whatever, did the L.A. Quartet and each season represented the novels? Yeah. 
exactly. Do it instead of like American Horror Story. I mean, we just gave Ryan Murphy again another gazillion dollars to do uh, riffs on that. As a noir guy, I love crime procedurals. It's my favorite genre. And when it's done brilliantly like Breaking Bad or shows like The Shield, I can absolutely watch those shows and get into it. I just have a feeling again that um, the Elroy source material requires a showrunner that has a sensitivity to the material. And I just, I can't put my finger on it better than this, guys. This material, when it's not handled properly, turns to mush faster than almost any other source novel. Like, the Black Dahlia shows me that again, that it's like on Gossamer Wings. When you touch Elroy and touch him correctly, you get L.A. Confidential. You squeeze even a little bit too hard to get just a little bit more juice out of the lemon, and it just splatters everywhere into nonsense. But with, in terms of this pilot, though, I didn't even, you know, it was almost like the opposite uh, almost the extreme opposite of something like Black Dahlia in terms of an attempted adaptation where I thought this was boring. I thought it was like there was nothing in it to hook me that made me say, oh, I want to see what happens in the next episode. Um, and part of it was like it seemed very lazy in terms of its attention to detail. I, I don't know what the budget was. It must have been small. Um, you really realize either you really realize how well cast the movie is. Because cause the actor, I mean, um, Kiefer Sutherland plays Jack Vincent's. And he's an okay actor. Right. He's one of the only people I recognize in this. I think there's only three actors that I actually recognize in this whole thing. So nobody became a breakout star. He's an okay actor. It's just, he just, for some reason in this, the way it's directed, the way he looks, there, there's nothing dynamic about him. Uh, in, in this particular role. Um, what's his name? Pruitt Taylor Vince plays the Sid Hudgens character, and he plays him almost like an Orson Welles type of guy, you know, and and you just miss Danny DeVito's kind of sleazy, you know, you know, kind of like little character guy. Um, and Eric Roberts makes a brief appearance. You know, you see him, and he's, he's the David Strathairn character in this, and it's, he's just Eric Roberts. But the two actors they cast to play White and Exley, it's really hard to tell them apart. <laughs> they both look way too similar. And the thing I, I was like, wow, they're going to really beat you over the head. Yes, we know Bud White does not like it when he sees men hitting women. Please remind us that three or four times. No, remind us a fifth time, please. You know, and the character that's like the Dudley Smith character is just nowhere near as interesting or as powerful as James Cromwell. It's, it's like this really weird kind of watered down, almost Saturday morning cartoon take on LA confidential. Yeah. It, it's very sloppy and yeah, it is boring. I mean, even though they should be setting up all of these mysteries for the rest of the season, it's just like, yeah, it's really not doing it for me. And I was glad that it, it felt like, had this come out even four years later uh, and they had a better cast for it, this could have been a contender for Madman's audience. Like they could have played it like a Madman type show as far as the look and the intrigue and all of these kind of things. And also, I mean, we have to remember that Elroy is not very, or his characters are not very gentle. I'm minorities. Like I've used 
horrible words in this podcast. All of these words, and these are, are very gentle compared to some of the words that I was just hearing in the audiobook version of LA Confidential. Like, there are no nice things being said about minorities or homosexuals at all. And so it's just really... I don't know how they would handle that kind of stuff on television unless they tried to take more of a uh, a view like Mad Men to say, look at how horrible this was back in the day, and have we come much farther, or are we still stuck in this rut? So, yeah, it's it, it would be rough to get uh, – you, you couldn't say the N-word the way that they say it in uh, the books um, unless we were doing this on an HBO or Netflix series. And even then you'd be pushing it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there might be a lot of moral outrage about that kind of stuff, even though it is kind of showing the sign of the times. Though I don't hear Don Draper just dropping N-bombs like crazy. They got that message. You got it in a show like that when they didn't actually have to do it. And I, I don't I don't think they would. You know, it's like like like, you know, people are saying, oh, it's not going to be a good horror movie unless it's rated R. It's like, well, no, I, I, I think it doesn't matter as long as it's done well. Mad Men is a show that tackled those issues. You got it, but they didn't actually go there, you know? Um, and I was going to like refer to a series that came out prior to LA Confidential as a Michael Mann series. I think it was a crime story, which was a really interesting period based story. It took around, it took place like in the early sixties, right? And that only lasted for one season, but that was like a model an LA confidential TV series could have looked to and to how to adapt it for like a mainstream television audience. Uh, but it, this was just, you know, it reminded me of those, those shows that you would see on, you know, like channel 11 that was made in Canada, but was supposed to take place here in the United States, you know, that, that you would see a lot like in the nineties and early knots, you know, like silk stockings or something like that. And it, it just really didn't, it, nothing about it screamed like, oh, this must be a TV series based on that pilot. Well, yeah, I'm curious where they go with this in the future. If it is all access or if they're going to try to slot this in right after Criminal Minds. Yeah, it's impossible to know, but I agree with the points you guys are making. I mean, and especially, Mike, I mean, just to kind of uh, close out your point. Yeah, this is, again, where I think it's really challenging sometimes when work goes back to throwback. Um, nowadays into time periods where things that this is getting into um, language and ideas and ideologies that have been debunked, have been uh, addressed culturally. And I do worry about it, especially when people of privilege uh, do it and sometimes maybe do it unreflectively. And I don't know exactly where Elroy's head is on all of this stuff. But it is. It, it always raises concerns for me when there's the, some of the issues that you brought up. And, I, and I'm glad that you're willing to bring it up on the projection booth. I don't have any sort of answer on it or take, except that I do think um, it can be very, very problematic and that a lot of individuals, um, you know, look at this type of work and try to look at it, um, you know, very soberly because it can be um, uh a very uh, painful subject for a lot of people. All right, we're going to take another break and play preview for next week's show. Bill Foster is an ordinary man. Where are you going? Going home. Not this way or not. Why not? Metro rail construction. That's why not. Living in the everyday world. 
I don't suppose you'd have a couple of bucks you could give me. It would really help me out. If you give me your address, I'll mail it back on us. A patient man. Can I help you? Yes, I'd like a ham and cheese omelet, lamb fries. I'm sorry. We stop serving breakfast at 11.30. Who's running out of patience? I guess a change for the phone. A peaceful man. No change. I have to buy something. Who's about to be pushed? 85 cent, 85 cent. Hasn't given me enough money for the phone call. Drink, 85 cent. You pay a gold. A little too far. I stay. You mean you stole your baseball bat, but he paid for the soda? Just standing up for my rights. As a consumer. Oh, this guy's discriminating. What kind of vigilante are you? I am just trying to get home to my little girl's birthday. Give us your briefcase. If everybody will stay out of my way. Here, you want a briefcase? Here's my briefcase! Where's the briefcase, huh? Wait, 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 wait. Then nobody will get hurt. Warner Brothers presents... Say, would you get off my golf course? Yeah! The story of an everyday guy... who refused... Five! Baby, whoa! ...to take it one more day. So we got a nutcase with a bag full of guns. He's in Hollywood right now, and he's heading west. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but there's other people waiting to use the phone here. Now, if you go up against this guy, be careful. I think it's out of order. Somebody in a white shirt and tie gunned down a phone with three blocks in the Whammy Burger. Michael Douglas. In America, we have the freedom of speech. Come on, I want to be a parking lot. I'll buy a ticket. The right to disagree. Robert Duvall. I know who this guy is. In a Joel Schumacher film. What are you doing to the street? We're fixing it. What the hell does it look like? See, I don't think anything's wrong with the street. I think you're just trying to justify your inflated budgets. Well, I guess so. I'll give you something to fix. What are you... Hey, Charlie! <laughs> Falling down. Let's call it a day. Come on. I'm the bad guy? A tale of urban reality. That's right, we'll be back next week with a discussion of other white men doing bad things with Joel Schumacher's falling down. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Eric and Rich. Eric, what is the latest with you, sir? I'm just, like, busy working. I do a lot of video production. I've been doing a lot of it lately. Uh, In terms of the cinephiles, uh, we're probably going to get together soon to figure out what we're going to do next. Uh, so, you know, we all life stuff has gotten in our way. So we haven't been able to record episodes in a very long time, but we're starting to get that itch to do something soon. So stay tuned. And Rich, what is the haps these days, daddy? You know, it's just always great to be able to talk film with the two of you. Um, I have, uh, you know, working on my next Turner Classic Movie Project. So hopefully some announcements about an upcoming free summer course will be um, out in public um, sometime in the uh, late March or early April timeframe. So stay tuned to that. If you've been a fan of the courses I've taught around film noir, slapstick comedy, or last year's 50 Years of Hitchcock, yet another uh, free course is on its way. And I can't talk about it just yet but stay tuned in all the normal channels where you heard about it last time other than that i'm just been uh busy with work and um not doing as much with uh podcasting and movie talk as i'd like so i love these opportunities so thanks again for having me on your show well thank you guys for being on the show thanks to everybody for listening please head on over to the website projection-booth.com where you can find out more about today's episode you also find links over to itunes where you can rate and review the show 
that's really important that we get more ratings and reviews that would be fantastic or you can go over to patreon where you can make a donation to the show donors get early access to every episode as long as i'm not running late every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise.